Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Mandela. This afternoon, the trail has traveled is being recorded at the MPG Ranch, which is about 15,000 acres spread out here in western Montana in the Bitterroot Valley. And MPG Ranch is an ecological research station. They're trying to create a highly functioning ecosystem. They study everything from soil microbes to elk. And we're going to learn a lot about that today because I'm sitting here with Mike McTee. And he has been with the ranch from the beginning. It was established in 2009. And Mike is a researcher. He's originally from Western Washington. So, Mike, I just want to say thank you for making the time to join me today on the Trail Less Traveled and share the beauty of this place with me. Thank you. It's been fun zooming around the ranch and looking at the flowering bitter brush and talking about lead-free ammunition. My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in western Washington um, in Snohomish. I actually went to Monroe High School, which it's probably not famous for this, but it should be. It had a state penitentiary right next to the track. So when you had track meets, kids from other schools would go up to the chain link fence and look over. So <laughs> we had that reputation locally. As far as adventure goes, my dad was always pulling me on little adventures to go fly fishing and, and hunting. So I shot my first recurve bow when I think I was four years old. And then he took me hunting and I remember wearing boots that had absolutely no tread. And I was just sliding down the snow slope, getting beat up, wondering if this is really something to enjoy. I would say that that hunting and that, that fishing experience really brought me to Montana because I just love the landscapes out here. Western Washington had a lot of really craggy mountains that were really fun to look at, but during my younger years, I could never really get to the top of them and feel safe. But something about the mountains out here, they just seem more attainable, and then the rivers flowing below them held so many trout with just that idyllic setting, and luckily I got into the University of Montana and kept going. I remember reading a lot when I was in, I'd say late junior high and early high school about different places in the world, like New Zealand and the Himalayas. I remember my mom bought me a backpacker magazine that had a description of New Zealand and hiking there. And there was, I think it was a photo of Wanaka. Somebody was climbing Mount Roy and, and I just became infatuated with the idea of traveling all over the place. And, and I just became curious. So when I would go fishing, I would log all the different trout species I caught. I would just try to explore as much as possible. Maybe after fishing the Yakima River in the canyon, I'd go hiking up in the hills and look for bighorn sheep and find an old fire pit up on the top and wonder who put that pit there and what they were doing. Were they hunting the sheep? Were they just hiking like me? I would say that I definitely grew up in a hunting family. My dad had all sorts of different heads on the walls from deer to even some exotic species that, well, they'd be exotic here in Montana, but African species. And he hunted with 
a recurve bow only and a wood arrow. There's something about hunting with a recurve bow that's unlike hunting with any other firearm, and that's you really can't shoot an animal that's farther than 30 yards unless you're a very, very good shooter, like a competitive shooter. So ultimately, we would go hunting all the time, and rarely did we find any success. We only took home venison a few times on those outings, and so I really learned about patience and setting expectations and that the hunt wasn't really about bringing home the venison at all. And some of those early experiences with my dad are some of the best. I remember sitting on top of this one mountain. We were mule deer hunting and it was over Thanksgiving and the sun was setting over the Cascade Mountains and the sky was painted this orange and it formed this cross in the sky of orange. And I'm not a religious person or anything, and I'm not trying to say it was a religious experience, but I, I took a photo of that moment with me and my dad right there on that, that hillside, and I still have it, and it's framed. Hunting provided the opportunity for him and I to get out and deepen our relationship. So when you think of bow hunting, a lot of hunters use a compound bow, and that's basically a bow that has two wheels on it that can create a tremendous amount of energy when the arrow is released. A recurve bow is basically a piece of wood. Maybe it's a couple pieces of wood put together. And when the archer pulls back that string, they're pulling all the weight. They feel it all as opposed to a compound bow where there's a let off where they feel much less of the weight. And so it's a very traditional type of bow, kind of like a long bow. These bows date back a long time. And I remember my dad, he would actually buy wooden shafts for his arrows just blank shafts, and then he would sand them with a really fine grit sandpaper until they were incredibly smooth. Then he'd wipe them down. And then he would (laughs) turn our laundry room into this toxic smelling environment where he would dip them in lacquer to get a nice shine on them and an added weight and it improved their durability. Just this nasty smell was billowing out of our laundry room. It seemed like at least a couple times a year. Then after he did that, he transferred the toxic smell to his back room where he painted the arrows. So he put the arrows on this, I really don't know what you call it, but the arrows spun on this instrument or machine, and he took his paintbrushes, and he put in little stripes, you know, a design that he liked, and he was very meticulous. And then he cut the turkey feathers for the fletchings on the arrows. And then he sharpened the broadheads that he glued onto the end of these wood arrows. And they were sharp to begin with when he bought the broadheads, but then he'd sharpen them more and he'd wear leather gloves. And I remember one summer, my mom and I, we were out doing something and we come home. And my dad, he's got blood stained all over his leather gloves and he's got a hole in his his hand (laughs) because he was sharpening the broadhead and it slipped into his hand so we had to go to the er that sunday evening so growing up in that setting really dialed me into the hunting community and to what it means to be passionate about a specific sport or hobby or pastime And that's the voice of Mike McTee. You are listening to The Trail Less Traveled. And today we are sitting in the shade, luckily, because it is hot out. And I'm looking right now at the beautiful Bitterroot Mountain Range. We're surrounded by a, a garden, which we'll talk about shortly. But, Mike, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the connection between hunters, angling, and conservation. Growing up in a household of hunters, my dad and myself really kept me in tune to what was going on with wildlife. He was a member of the Safari Club International, which 
is a group, some people might say, full of trophy hunters and this and that. But I remember looking through that magazine and studying all the different animals of the world that people were hunting. And to me, the interesting part, that wasn't necessarily the head and the skin that came home with the hunters or even what that type of animal tasted like. But what's that animal doing up in the Tian Shan? How do Argali sheep grow horns that seemingly curl twice? And I was just trying to learn all these different species and understand their habitats. And that curiosity just it really has stuck with me my entire life. And when I go hunting, I'm really after learning about what's going on outside through patient observation. Because so often, you're sitting on top of a hill, just watching nature. Maybe I'll have my binoculars on, on a tripod, and I'm looking around and seeing nothing and seeing nothing. And then, I'm, oh, I think I see a bighorn sheep. What's it doing over there? Just last week, here's a good story. Last week, I was looking for sheep locally on Rock Creek. And my buddy and I, we spot this ewe on this big cliff. It seemed like an impossible cliff for an animal to be on. It had somehow climbed down this little cleft down to this pocket. And then we started looking closer. And when it climbed out, a lamb was wandering around the bottom. So the ewe basically jumped out of this fishbowl. And this lamb is walking back and forth and is trying to follow its mom and it can't. And it's trying to jump out and it's just bouncing around. And then meanwhile, what we think is a golden eagle nest is, I don't know, 200 yards away. So is that lamb going to have a golden eagle swooping down at it? And we're just so curious about what's happening to that lamb. So my friend Tyler and I, we go for a hike all day. When we come back and at the end of the day, we look again in that fishbowl and there's the lamb just stuck there and it can't get out. So what's going on there? Is the ewe grazing up on the hill and it's coming down and feeding the lamb? It seems like a safe place to be if the lamb can get out. Maybe it can't get out until it's big enough. And then my dad and I go back two days later because I'm just curious what's going on there. So there's that type of connection that I feel like most hunters just love wildlife. And killing the animal is one of the least fulfilling parts of it. I don't enjoy killing at all. What I enjoy is being out there and seeing the wildlife and being with my friends and my family. And of course, I do enjoy having a freezer full of venison. That's a big deal to my wife and I. And backing up to the history of hunters and conservation. So a lot of the money that hunters put forth for hunting equipment, for firearms, a lot of that is funneled toward wildlife and conservation programs. Back in the 1930s during the Great Depression, Pittman-Robertson Act was enacted, and that means that 10 to 11% of firearm and hunting purchases, some hunting purchases, do go to wildlife. And then there was the federal duck stamp. So anybody of a, I think it's 16 or older who hunts waterfowl needs to buy one of those. And then that money goes toward waterfowl conservation. It goes towards wetland improvements and eventually can go to expanding wildlife refuges. That's hunter dollars. And then there was another program later that came into effect called the Dingle Johnson. That's for fishing equipment. And there's something about hunting where even if you don't want to be out there, You need to be out there if you want to be successful. Rain, snow, heat, whatever. You're not going to have a successful day if you go home. And I remember this one day, my buddy and I were down in the Bitterroot Valley, and he had a bear tag. I did not. And we're walking around, 
just looking around. A lot of elk were in the area, so it was fun to watch them. Sometimes we would glass the hill slopes with our binoculars looking for shed antlers. And eventually some elk saw us and they wandered off, not hard. And it was midday, we we're both tired and I lay down, I slipped my hat over my face and Cody's looking around. And then we hear this thump coming from over where the elk had just wandered off. And so originally they were on this hill slope that was grassy, then they go into the forest. And I throw up my binoculars, Cody throws up his binoculars, and this elk comes out of the forest and it looked like it was headless. And we quickly put our binoculars on our tripods to steady our, steady our view because the elk was probably four, 450 yards away. And what it was was a mountain lion was right on its face. And the weight of the mountain lion pulling it down made it look like the elk was headless. And so they're going downhill. The elk is just trying to stay on all four hooves. And then it falls and they tumble and the mountain lion just, it goes on a ride. That mountain lion hung on. The elk gets back on its feet, goes down into the bottom of the draw, and then falls over. And then the lion just hangs on and doesn't move. And then if you've heard cow elk before, they make this mew sound. Heard that once or twice. The elk kicked a couple times, and then that was it. And then the lion just relinquished its grip. It seemed like the elk's face, but it must have been on its throat. And it just lays back and breathes. It's panting. And I can't imagine the exertion and how much trauma it experienced going, I don't know, 100 yards down the mountain being carried by an elk. So after it gets his breath, it started rubbing the elk carcass like a house cat will rub your leg. I guess it was putting its scent on it or something like that. And then it just slinks off and disappears. And it just became a ghost. We have no idea where it went. So it's probably 1 p.m. and we have all day, I suppose. And all of a sudden, we're not bear hunting anymore. We're just looking for this cat. And so we sit there all day with our binoculars sitting on the tripod, staring at this elk carcass. And the cat had scooted some leaves and sticks and all this brush over the carcass. So it was, I would say, impossible to tell that there was a carcass there unless you saw it fall. So we've got our binoculars glued to the area for four hours. Time's just ticking away. And then slowly, this mountain lion emerges into view, walks across a log, and then it just starts ripping into the elk. Fast, just big tears right into, uh, I, I, God, it was so long ago. I took really good notes in my field journal about it. I can't remember exactly where it was tearing in, but I think by its hindquarters. And if we weren't hunting, we never would have seen that. There's just something that you get by being outside in places that are off trail, places where people rarely travel. You're just part of nature. You are a participant. And as long as you really pay attention and you're willing to be patient, those things are out there and they're happening all the time. And you may never see anything like that in your life. I certainly will not unless I see a wolverine attacking a caribou or something like that. And I assume that won't happen. <laughs> The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. 
please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash trail less traveled. Today, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in an educational garden at the MPG Ranch in the Bitterroot Valley. And I'm looking out at the Bitterroot Mountain Range. I've got the sapphires to my left and the Bitterroots to my right. And I'm sitting here with Mike McTee. He's a researcher. Mike has been working here at the MPG Ranch since 2009. The MPG Ranch is about 15,000 acres spread out that is considered an ecological research station. And they're trying to create a highly functioning ecosystem by studying everything from soil microbes to elk. One of the projects that Mike is working on is spreading awareness regarding the move to using lead-free ammo. And so, Mike, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about lead-free ammo and the effects that it has on wildlife and ecosystems when lead is introduced into the environment. Even though I came to MPG Ranch being a lifelong hunter, I was really surprised to learn about lead poisoning and raptors. So since the start of MPG in 2010, Raptor View Research Institute, they're based out of Missoula. Rob Dominich is the CEO and president of that organization. They started catching golden eagles and bald eagles, among other raptors here at MPG Ranch. In the winter, they would drive up and down the Bitterroot Highway, just scouring the ditches, looking for roadkill. They had a permit to do this. And they would take the roadkill here on the property and they would stake it to the frozen soil and they would install this net launcher. It uses 22 caliber blanks. So they have a remote control with, I think it just has a single button and they can push that. Then the blanks fire and it will cast a net over whatever is feeding on the roadkill. And hopefully it's an eagle. And so they put these bait stations out on the landscape along with net launchers. Then they hide from a distance, maybe in a ranch house where they can still view a carcass. And eagles sometimes land eagerly, but mostly not. Usually a bald eagle will just perch in a tree and (laughs) make the raptor crew excited. And then it just flies off or never feeds. And golden eagles are especially wary, but they do land. And when they do land, if raptor view pushes the net launcher, hopefully the net shoots out. Sometimes it doesn't. But if they do catch an eagle... They'll put a falconry hood on it to cover its eyes so the eagle remains calm. Then they bring it into one of the ranch houses where it's warm because it's the winter. They'll take all sorts of different measurements. They'll measure the length of the talons, They'll measure the wingspan, the eagle's weight. And I'll tell you what, eagles are cool. They are so cool. I wish everybody could see an eagle up close because once you see an eagle up close, you will have respect for it for your entire life. I guarantee it. These things will have wingspans bigger than a full-grown human, yet they weigh about the size of an infant. You know, birds are, they're lightweight. They can't be heavy if they're going to fly. And their talons are about as long as a pinky finger. They are just incredible birds. And if you consider a golden eagle, they can ride pronghorns like jockeys and stab their talons into the back and chip off muscle and just tear away the muscle. And it's a gruesome scene, but it's a bird that's doing it, which is incredible. Anyway, Raptor View, they take these birds inside and they measure all these different things and they would take samples of the blood. And we learned that a lot of these eagles had elevated levels of lead in their blood. 
If you look at golden eagles, it's nearly 95%. And elevated means that something's going on. If you take a bird that's in captivity, like a a falconry bird or a bird that's at a rehabilitation facility that hasn't flown in the wild for years and it's taken in as a young bird, it will not have lead levels like that unless something horrible is going on. So this was really concerning, 95%. For bald eagles, it was a little less. We haven't published a paper on that yet, but it's probably somewhere around 80% of those birds. And that threshold for elevated is actually twice what the CDC says is elevated for humans. So that's alarming. And as a hunter, I'm like, oh, that's a shame, but my lead bullet, it doesn't fragment. Supposedly, it was because lead bullets were being left behind in animals. And I assume that the entire mass of the lead bullet would be left over in an animal. But what's really going on is if you take a bullet, a lead bullet, it'll have a jacket on the outside that could be gilding metal or all copper. And then on the nose of it, it could be a plastic tip or maybe it's lead. And lead is soft. If you have fishing sinkers, you can usually dig your thumb into that lead because it's so soft. Then you fire it from a gun and it's traveling two to 3,000 feet per second, and then it crashes into an animal. Some of that soft lead is going to splinter away. And those little tiny particles can travel more than a foot away from the main wound channel. And as a hunter, I know that after shooting an animal, There's usually some areas that have a lot of trauma, and I'll cut that out and leave it in the field. The problem is those areas with trauma might have bullet fragments. Or if I shoot an animal and I don't recover it, if it's wounded, unfortunately that does happen to many hunters from time to time, then all of those fragments could be available to a scavenger. And we've put game cameras on carcasses and on gut piles, and eagles just, they locate them. So if you think about an eagle's diet. You really, we have to separate golden and bald eagles. Golden eagles are hunters. Taking a pronghorn down, that's incredible. But their main staples are more rabbits, hares, ground squirrels, birds. Like up in Alaska, they'll take out willow ptarmigans. Bald eagles, they can fish. They're really foragers. They're scrappy. They'll steal fish from osprey, But they'll also do all sorts of crazy stuff. Like this one time I saw a snow goose floating down the Selway River, and it really had no business being there. It seemed like it was off its migratory course. And then this bald eagle was above it, and it was swooping down and down. And every time the goose dunked underwater and then popped back up, and the eagle was missing. For some reason, the goose never took off. Maybe I thought its best bet was to stay on the water. Or more likely, it was just injured or in bad shape and couldn't take off. And I don't know how many times this deadly dance continued, but it was a dozen or two times. And eventually the bald eagle swooped down and its talons grabbed goose flesh and carried the goose all the way to the shore and ate it. But the thing about in the winter is that rivers freeze. They might not fish as well. Lakes freeze. And for golden eagles, ground squirrels, marmots, some of those prey, they're underground. And right after hunting season, there is a lot of dead stuff laying across the landscape and it's an easy meal. So it can really be seen as a double-edged sword. These eagles are getting this pulse of nutrients. It's energy rich. They don't have to hunt for it. It's just right there. But the downside is that those carcasses and gut piles might contain lead fragments. Another thing is that it's risky being on the ground if you're a bird because other birds can swoop down, coyotes, wolves, 
In some cases, bears could even come in and create a skirmish. But eagles, they're tough. We've had video footage of golden eagles chasing off coyotes repeatedly. Coyotes are willing to test a golden eagle, but they know their place in the hierarchy of scavengers and they can get really hurt by a golden eagle. And I would say that most often golden eagles, if there's an interaction between a bald eagle and a golden eagle, the golden eagle is the one who remains the the victor still on the carcass there. So ultimately, there's a lot of potential for there to be lead fragments that scavengers like eagles can ingest. And it doesn't just stop at hunting. If you think of a farmer who dispatches livestock and shoots the cow in the head and leaves it to the scavengers or any type of livestock, that could be a vector. Prairie dogs and ground squirrels. We've actually studied this at MPG Ranch. So it's estimated that millions of prairie dogs alone are shot every year for either recreation or damage control. There's also ground squirrels or gophers and marmots and coyotes and maybe badgers and all these things that aren't required normally to be picked up by the shooter so they can just lay in the field where they're available to scavengers. And going back to the gut piles from deer and elk, these small mammals can be a huge food subsidy to these eagles and other scavengers. In fact, there was a study from the Northwest that showed that eagle nestlings closer to agriculture tended to be a little bit bigger in size because they were probably getting a food subsidy from some of these shot mammals. But the flip side was that they had more lead in their blood. And to be honest, it took me a couple years before I really took it to heart. So Rob Dominich and Raptorview, they were catching eagles below my house. I lived at MPG Ranch and I saw them catching eagles that had elevated lead levels and I continued to use lead bullets. Part of it was because of availability. The cool thing about the lead poisoning problem, even though it's extensive, it's a global problem, there's a really simple solution. So if you look at climate change, for example, it takes a lot of people to be on board to make a big difference. And the solutions can be complicated. I'll be honest, I drive a Toyota Tundra. It doesn't get good gas mileage, but I like how it does in the mountains. It's just a good overall truck. It's not a good fuel-efficient vehicle. But when it comes to lead ammunition, there's actually an alternative, copper ammunition, and it's been out for decades. Barnes Bullets was one of the first producers of copper bullets, and those came out around four decades ago. And the creator of those bullets actually wanted to build a better bullet. The fact that they didn't poison scavengers was just this fortunate coincidence. And since then, more and more manufacturers have begun producing copper bullets, I think partially due to the demand. More people are becoming aware that lead bullets fragment and can end up in the meals that hunters eat, but also in the meals that scavengers eat. A lot of people shoot Barnes bullets and other copper bullets strictly for the performance because they shoot really well out of their gun. In fact, there's one brand of bullets called cutting edge bullets that people routinely use for long range shooting, and it has nothing to do with ecological implications of shooting lead at all. And as far as whether the bullets perform well or not, it really depends on the gun. And if there are any hunters listening to this who have a specific gun, I would just recommend looking for whatever ammunition is factory loaded for your gun. And if you shoot that, I'm guessing it's going to perform really well as far as accuracy. So if people have custom guns, you might need to do a little bit more research. If you look inside a gun barrel, don't 
look down the gun barrel. That's very dangerous. But inside the gun barrel, there's a twist. It's the rifling that stabilizes the bullet. Twist rates can be like 1 in 8 or 1 in 12, something like that, meaning that the bullet is going to revolve one time per 8 inches or per 12 inches. That adds bullet stability. A big difference between copper bullets and lead bullets is that copper as a metal is less dense. Because it's less dense and is being put into a rifle barrel that can't get any wider, the copper bullet has to be physically longer to achieve the same grain weight as a lead bullet. And for that bullet to be stabilized out of the rifle, the rifle's twist needs to be able to accommodate it. But that's pretty easy because if you look at any bullet manufacturer's website for copper bullets, they'll tell you if you need to have a rifle with a specific twist rate. If you buy factory loaded ammunition and you have a factory gun, it's probably going to shoot phenomenally. Really, if you grab five different boxes of lead ammunition and head to the range of different brands, those could shoot very differently. In fact, I would almost guarantee it. It's not just this lead to copper issue. It's a bullet to bullet issue. Guns like certain bullets. Another important point about copper bullets is that although they're lighter, you can really expect excellent penetration and overall performance from a lighter bullet because unlike lead that fragments, the copper bullet will retain usually all of its mass. So because it retains all of that mass, it can carry momentum and penetrate deeply. I've been testing copper bullets just for fun and also to see how bullets fragment. So what I do is I take a big rain barrel and then I strap it sideways on a table. And then in the rain barrel, I'll put five or six water jugs and then shoot them with lead bullets and copper bullets. And the lead bullets, they always fragment. It doesn't matter what style it is, whether it's a cup and core, partition, bonded. I've never found a lead bullet that doesn't fragment. The copper bullets usually stay completely intact. If anything comes off, it's usually the little tiny tip at the end, the plastic tip. Sometimes they lose a little pedal, but overall they hold that weight. And the thing about copper is it's actually a micronutrient for a lot of organisms. It's not as toxic as lead. Here in Missoula, we have the Clark Fork River running by town, and that river was poisoned by all sorts of heavy metals, including copper. But copper in general is way more toxic to aquatic organisms than the ones living on land. So it's really comparing apples and oranges. There was one study that actually fed American kestrels, tiny little falcons, copper pellets, and they seemed fine. With a lot of us working at MPG Ranch as researchers or biologists or field crew, a lot of us are also hunters. And by seeing so many eagles come in with this lead exposure, it really motivated the entire staff to begin shooting copper bullets. It just wouldn't fit within our conservation goals to be shooting lead bullets and watching Rob catch eagles with lead poisoning. So we switched over and we really became advocates for the use of non-lead ammunition. And one way we've done that is by requiring hunters at MPG Ranch to use copper bullets. And to begin with, there is public hunting at MPG Ranch. There are a lot of people who want to hunt here and gain permission to hunt elk or this and that. And our website has requirements and a lot of general information for hunters. And 
overall, it's very difficult for people to get out because there are so many people who want to hunt and we have a long list of people who would like to um, be out here. But they are required to use copper ammunition and we see a lot of hunters every year. I don't remember the current average, but I think it's between 50 and 100 public hunters gain permission to hunt here every year. So that's quite a lot. And we've harvested an average of 45 cow elk every year. So dozens and dozens of elk, all with copper ammunition and they work really well. We have also began giving presentations to rod and gun clubs, to wildlife organizations. And it seems like there's really a high demand for this right now. People are thirsty for information about lead-free bullets. They're curious about lead poisoning. Uh, We've done booths and this and that. And overall in Montana, I am very surprised by how well-received it's been. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised. This state has a lot of conservation-minded people. It's just gone really well. But looking at online posts and forums sometimes, I do think that there's a misconception that people who advocate for non-lead ammunition are trying to ban lead ammunition. That's very much not the case. And it's quite possible that there are some people who want to ban hunting and lead ammunition is very possible. But by and large, people who advocate for copper bullets and non-lead ammunition care about raptors and overall ecosystem health. And I think a lot of that animosity spawned from the mid-2000s from the California condors. Because back then, there just weren't that many condors around. Back in the 80s, there were only a couple dozen. They were all brought in for captive breeding. Eventually, in the 90s, they started being released back into the wild in California, into Arizona's Grand Canyon, into Baja, California. And they faced obstacles. The condors, they would feed their nestlings micro trash sometimes, like bottle caps, screws, things like that. Sometimes they hit utility lines or were electrocuted. And lead poisoning turned up in a lot of these birds. One thing that the condor biologists were doing is they were creating feeding stations that ease the condors back into the wild so they could find an easy meal, but they could also be wild and learn how to forage by themselves. But by having these feeding stations, it allowed the biologists to catch the birds and test their blood. And that's how they figured out that so many birds had elevated lead levels. And because they were getting those numbers, they were able to actually hospitalize quite a few of those condors and administer chelation treatment, which is when a molecule is injected into the birds that basically starts stripping the lead from their body. And it's really hard on the birds, but it's harder on the birds to be exposed to lead because I'm sure everybody knows lead is bad for you. It causes all sorts of neurological damage. The birds struggle from it. And condors are really in trouble because of lead poisoning. And because of the struggles with condors and lead poisoning, eventually there was legislation in California to restrict the use of lead ammo for hunting in areas where condors flew. There was eventually legislation to ban it statewide for hunting in 2019. And that was a big deal, saying that hunters cannot use lead ammunition now. Hunters were largely blindsided by it because they didn't know why. They didn't understand the science behind what was going on there. So there was all this animosity in California because of that ban. Meanwhile, in Arizona, they also had condors, and the Arizona Fish and Game knew all about the problem. They worked with the Peregrine Fund really closely, 
the Peregrine Fund helped bring the Peregrine Falcon back from the brink of extinction. And then they're working on condors and they work on raptor conservation globally. Anyway, they all knew that lead bullets fragmented, that the concentration of lead in the condor blood actually spiked during hunting season, but they didn't want to ban it. They wanted to do something that could potentially get hunters on their side. What they did is they surveyed landowners, hunters, locals about what type of information they would want to see about this, about lead poisoning. And then they ran a survey and everybody's like, well, we want to see the information. So they provided the x-rays and the data and all that. And they created an incentive program where in the Kaibab Plateau region that had condors, hunters could voluntarily use non-lead ammunition and the ammunition would be free. They would get two free boxes of non-lead ammunition. And if for some reason they chose to use lead ammunition, if they brought the whole gut pile out of that area and they showed it at a check station, they were actually entered into a drawing to win all sorts of different stuff. I think one was an elk hunt on some tribal land down there. Another was a fishing trip and gift cards and things like that. So they had this program that encouraged hunters to get the lead off the landscape so condors wouldn't be eating it. Since that program took effect, they've had a participation rate of over 80%. So a lot of hunters are on board. And they were just encouraging a voluntary switch. And that's really what a lot of people are doing. Like the North American Non-Lead Partnership here at MPG Ranch, we're doing a similar thing. We're staying away from the whole ban. And really, I think that there could be some issues with a ban on lead anyway. Because if you look at two different bullets, one is lead and one is non-lead. They're both going to have some form of copper on the outside. It might be solid copper or it might be copper with a little zinc sprinkled in. Or there's going to be a jacket that's not lead. And then the tip of it might have a plastic or polymer tip. So you can't really tell which one is lead based on visual inspection. And it would also be difficult to find hunters in the field and determine what they're using. So back in 1991, using lead ammunition for waterfowl hunting was actually banned. But waterfowl hunters largely congregate near waterways, on refuges. In Montana, it might be a little different because we have so much public land. But in some states, that's where people are going to be hunting. So it's easier for a game warden to check. But most of all, I think that hunters really have to realize what we're talking about, that by switching a bullet, we can keep lead out of all this scavenging wildlife and really improve the health of a lot of these animals that we love to see in the wild. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I want to thank our premier sponsors for The Trail Less Traveled, New West Knife Works and The Mountain Man Toy Shop. Handmade knives and tools forged in their factory on the western slope of the Tetons in Victor, Idaho. New West Knife Works makes knives like they cook, using the best ingredients and preparing them with patient hands of an artist. Their aim is to bring more joy to everyday chores by making tools that are as beautiful as they are useful. See for yourself by visiting newwestknifeworks.com. Use promo code MANDELA for 10% off your entire purchase, which will not only set you up with a knife that you will pass down for generations, this also supports the Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs. Visit newwestknifeworks.com using promo code MANDELA. 
LA. Today, the trail as traveled is being recorded at the MPG Ranch, and I'm sitting here with Mike McTee. He's a researcher at the ranch. I was wondering if you could take a moment to describe to the listener what you're looking at right now. Mandela and I were sitting under, I guess I would call it a gazebo in what we call the educational garden. So around us, we have a stream flowing by, an aspen grove, we have elderberries, and it's June. Everything is lush. It's beautiful. We have golden currants off to our left. They are probably going to be bulging with berries in a few weeks, maybe a month. And we're overlooking the Bidroot Valley. We're looking toward Woodchuck Creek, which is filled with cottonwoods. I wouldn't be surprised if an owl is nesting in there. And in the far distance, we have the Bitterroots, still capped with snow. So we're looking down toward about Stevensville, I suppose. And right now, I actually see a raptor soaring over a distant ridge that is covered with mule deer food, Bitterbrush. Very beautiful place, and there's meadowlark singing, and we have a house wren in this aspen grove doing its thing. It's just a very idyllic and meditative place to be. Mike, can you tell us about the MPG Ranch, where you have been working as a researcher for the past 12 years? As you said, we are set up like an ecological research station. So overall, the landscape covers about 15,000 acres. And with people familiar with Missoula, if you're driving between Lolo and Florence, heading south, if you look left and go over the river, the big hill that's grassy and turns the trees into a fairly broad couple of summits, that's MPG Ranch. And then it spills over those hills, those mountains to Davis Creek and eventually Miller Creek. So we span quite a few different habitat zones from riparian up to forest. And we have quite a few researchers working here right now. I don't even know the number. It must be at least a dozen and a half people with advanced degrees, master's degrees or PhDs. And we study all sorts of things. We have one scientist who studies the fungi growing inside invasive plants and how that might influence their capacity to invade. We have wildlife researchers who look at elk, what they graze on, how they use the habitat. Um, We've collaborated with Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks on multiple projects, largely regarding elk to see what they're up to also mule deer and this and that. I've personally studied a shooting range, an old shooting range here. If anybody shot at Bitterroot Sporting Clays uh, in the 90s, early 2000s, thank you. You helped me earn a master's degree studying that type of contamination. Mm. I enjoyed that. So what we do here is we do both basic and applied research. So the applied research might pertain to how to best get native plants into an area that's been invaded by cheatgrass? Or how do we grow shrubs in a draw that has suffered from erosion after decades of cattle running up and down those hills? And we also focus on education. So for instance, where Mandela and I are sitting in the education garden, pretty soon students are going to be here from the Ecology Project International Program, and they are partaking in the Bitterroot Wildlife Internship. And so they'll be taking along with researchers, seeing how researchers do their thing. So there might be lab work, field work. It's really a great 
opportunity for these high schoolers. And they also get the opportunity to do field work. So it might be as simple as pulling weeds in a restoration area or taking a weed whacker out and knocking off seed heads of napweed, something like that. And we are very active on social media and we have a website where we post our findings and weekly field notes. For instance, a guy named Jeff Clark, he writes a field note monthly and that guy for the last decade, every month has found something new on this ranch. It was one of those things, if you're just patient and you're willing to look at nature and learn about it. There's always something new. Yeah, nature is full of wonder, really. So he has a great field note, and we publish lots of papers that other academics from across the West and across the country can see to hopefully advance their research. Because ultimately, we want to take the tools that we learn for restoration and the wildlife research and hopefully have that be applicable to other people. For people who'd like to see what we're doing out here or maybe even volunteer or come on a tour, I would encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. That's on mpgranch.com. That comes out monthly and we routinely have opportunities for people to come out, maybe for raptor trapping or to see spring migration of raptors or to just get a general tour. And they fill up fast, so you have to be on it if you're interested. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram page where we have excellent videos that have mountain lions, bobcats, moose, because we have really an extensive game camera system here all over the 15,000 acres. Some of those photos get loaded right to the internet that people can see. We also have other cameras that take video that we upload periodically. And we have one website called a Raptor Tracker, which is very interesting. So these eagles, falcons, and hawks that Raptor View catches here on MPG Ranch, some of them get GPS transmitters that then uploads to our website. And it's really incredible where some of these go because we're a 15,000-acre property, which is really big, But we can have eagles that fly all the way up to the Arctic Ocean. I mean, I'm talking to where the Arctic Ocean is lapping against the edge of North America. Or they're going to where the Seward Peninsula in Alaska nearly kisses Russia. Or an osprey might go down to Cuba. A little songbird, like a gray catbird, might go down to Mexico. And we're seeing that because of these tags. It's really incredible. And for the GPS transmitter data, that's on the website and you can find that. And I really encourage you to do the same because it is awesome. And you can also control some of the cameras that we have here on the property. They're 360 degree cameras. You just click away. You can zoom in really far. If a deer is up close, you can see the flies buzzing around its nose. Cameras are really fun to play around with. If you play around with them at work, you're probably going to burn, I don't know, way too much time. Don't let your employer know. Mm-hmm. I assume it's fine if I do it because I work here. That's the voice of Mike McTee. He is a researcher here at MPG Ranch in the Bitterroot, and Mike has been working on the ranch for 12 years. He has a master's degree in geosciences from the University of Montana. Mike, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and energy today joining me on the trail less traveled. So for tips, I would say for any hunter interested in using non-lead ammunition, it's just, it's simple buy a box. Currently, as we're recording this, it's honestly difficult to find ammunition. Hopefully that improves. But if you can find a box of non-lead ammunition, just go to the range, try it out, 
I think you'll probably like how accurate it is. And then when you take it on your hunt, I think you'll probably like how well it works on big game. And then in general, maybe regarding traveling, I remember one time I was in Akaroa, New Zealand, and I was at a hostel over Christmas. And they had quotes all over the hostel. And my favorite one was, I think it was by Mark Twain, which every quote seems to be from Mark Twain. And it was that 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the things you did. And I always carry that with me. If I'm ever on the edge of traveling or booking that plane ticket, whatever it is, just, I feel like always go for it. There's a lot of fun things to do out there. For the third tip, maybe it regards more professional life, and that's to take risks, do things that might be intimidating, things that may lead to failure. I certainly don't want you to fail, but I feel like if you're not taking hard enough risks, you might not be challenging yourself enough. And it's for, for me personally, the most success I've had is from when I'm, I'm really scared of, of what could happen if it doesn't succeed. And Mike, what song would you like to end your show with? You know, a song that I just have never been able to get out of my head once I heard it, and I want to play it at my funeral, just on repeat. And it's a long song, it's like 12 minutes or something, would be John Butler Trio's Ocean. It just goes on and on, and it's all instrumental, and it's this beautiful, rhythmic song. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. I'd like to thank my guests this evening and remind you all that the show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream it live online at trail1033.com. And if you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast, available everywhere and at traillesstraveled.net. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded on location around the world and is a production of the Missoula Broadcasting Company, home of the Trail 1033. That's it for this week's adventure. My friends in Missoula and around the world, but until next week, do something for Mother Earth. And get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as you know, the thing about the gnar is it does not shred itself. This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by the Missoula-based and locally grown Mountain Meadow CBD. Their hemp is grown organically and all of their products are organic as well. Mountain Meadow utilizes a living soil technique that helps ensure the symbiotic relationship between the plants, the soil, and the insects. CBD has many therapeutic benefits, including, but not limited to, anxiety, joint pain, gut health, deeper sleep, depression, and as an immune system booster. Mountain Meadow CBD is a family-owned farm with very reasonable prices due to the fact that there are no middlemen between you and your product. They offer CBD tinctures in different strengths, pain solve, lip balm, vapes, and pre-rolls. You can find out more by visiting mountainmeadowcbd.com or on Instagram at mountainmeadowcbd.com.